0: This is Development Drums number 20. My name is Owen Bader in Addis Ababa. Today we've got a really interesting discussion about corruption, and I'll be joined by my guests Daniel Kaufman and by Mushtaq Khan. Before I introduce my guests, let me say a big thank you to Alison Evans, who took over this seat for Development Drums 19, and to the folks at ODI for making that episode possible. I'm joined by Professor Mushtak Khan, a professor of economics at the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS, here at the University of London. Mushtak, thanks for coming on to Development Drums. My pleasure. And I'm also joined by Daniel Kaufman, who's a senior fellow in global economy and development at the Brookings Institution. And he was previously the celebrated director of the World Bank Institute, and he led work there on governance and anti-corruption. His areas of expertise are public sector and regulatory reform, governance and anti-corruption. Daniel, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Thanks all. Let's start with, I think, uh, an issue that a lot of um, people who are not development experts um, find puzzling, which is uh, why it is that common sense tells us that corruption is an important issue. And yet a lot of people who work in development seem less concerned about it and perhaps popular opinion out there suggests they should be. And really one way of phrasing this question is whether, whether corruption causes poverty, which I think Daniel is something that you've argued quite strongly, or whether it's the poverty that causes the corruption, which is something, Mushtaq, that you've argued we should, we should focus on. Let's try and unpack. I mean, presumably in some sense, both is true, but let's try and unpack uh, which, which way around this causation is working. And and. It, Daniel, if we, if we could start with you. Um, you. You've claimed that countries can get a very large uh, dividend from better governance. Well, what's the evidence that, that you would want to point us to that if we could tackle corruption, we'd get faster poverty reduction?
1: Well, at, at one aggregate level, we can point to, to the work uh, um, that a num- by now a number of academics have done, but we, we did it with our cray. Long time ago, almost a decade ago, which is a 300% dividend, development dividend of good governance and anti-corruption, we call it. So a country that makes a serious effort and does improve in controlling corruption can expect in the very long term, so the payoff takes, uh, takes place much for over a very long period. I can expect a threefold increase in per capita income, going from a thousand to three thousand dollars per capita per year, or from four to twelve to twelve thousand. And that's and, just uh, from
0: tackling corruption. Just by tackling corruption, you can go from one thousand to three thousand dollars per capita income.
1: Well, you're getting already into the complicated arena because one of the. <laughs> things that they have for better or worse quoted me many times is uh, the expression that one doesn't fight corruption by fighting corruption so there's no such thing as just tackling corruption by just instituting an anti-corruption commission or adopting another law that won't work one has to look at at the quality of of the key institutions uh, whether there's a free press democratic accountability the issue of property rights so so you you have you have to do homework on governance in general to tackle corruption, there's no such thing as okay. just tackling corruption. We'll, we'll, come
0: in, we'll come in a second to the question of how we tackle corruption and what the best way of doing it is, but Mushtaq, what's your take? Do you buy this idea that if you, if you can find a way to improve governance and corruption that that enhances uh, growth and uh, poverty reduction?
2: Look, there's absolutely no dispute that if you compare rich countries which have achieved development Um, and you look at their levels of corruption, and you compare them with poor countries which are struggling and are poverty-stricken and so on, there's a huge difference in corruption between them. Okay, so rich countries are generally less corrupt and they're rich, and poor countries are more corrupt and they're poor. Uh, There's absolutely no question about that. Now the question is, so if you, the problem is to show what are the preconditions for getting from poverty to prosperity. That's what the policy issue is is really all about. Nobody is disputing that uh, corruption is a bad thing, that corruption has a lot of negative effects, that corruption damages people, that we would all love to live in a corruption-free world. I think those are not issues at all. There's no disagreement amongst anybody on those things. And a country with lower corruption is better than a country with higher corruption, period. But specifically to Danny's point, which
0: is work with Cray, that if you can reduce corruption, then you reduce poverty. Do you
2: believe that? No. I think there the debate becomes extremely complicated. There are many different types of corruption, number one. Some types of corruption can be reduced in poor countries and will have a dividend on development. But there are many other problems in developing countries. And the, the question that you posed at the very beginning is vital, which is why are all poor countries corrupt? And, and the answer is not a simple one that poverty causes corruption because poor people are hungry, so they steal. It's not That's simple, because actually, if you look at poor countries, the poorest people are not corrupt at all. It's not the poor who are corrupt. It's somebody else is corrupt. Okay, and so the the question really is, why are emerging ruling classes in poor countries so corrupt compared to ruling classes in rich countries? And if you put that question in that historical way, a, a long term historical Um, question, which I think econometrics can't answer those kinds of questions. So I I have a real problem with econometric approaches to establishing causality there. Then the question is is a slightly different one. There are a number of structural uh, features which I've identified in my work. Which means that, which shows that developing countries are structurally more corrupt, and there's nothing much you can do about it in the short run. And can I give you a couple of examples of that? Before you do, let me just let me just check uh, with Danny. So um,
0: here, the proposition is that poor countries are structurally more corrupt, and so you need to tackle the poverty to tackle the corruption. Daniel, do you buy that?
1: Um, uh, No. Um, uh, Look, uh, I think at some at some point. One has to move beyond, and I agree with Mushtaq, beyond the lofty econometric debate. <clears throat> we claim, and there's a set of about four or five um, refereed articles in the best journals, that one can entangle causality with the best econometric from all of countries all over the world, and one shows that there's a causal link going from first improving governance and anti-corruption to better development outcomes, including growth and and incomes. Um, The reverse causality is debatable. Some, like us, have not found much play because there are countries that get a lot of money from oil and have not been able to transfer that into better governance and others have done well so on average it it washes out but that's a debate we can have until midnight i agree with mushta that it's not enough just to look at these big econometric studies it's very important to go to the micro data we have shown at the project level just using all the development projects that the bank has funded that where there is corruption in general in the country that affects essentially the delivery, the implementation, the quality, and whether the project succeeds or, or fails. There is a lot of evidence at the country level. There's this great book that everybody should read that just came out about Kenya. It's Our Turn to Eat by Michaela Rong. I think rather than having very lofty academic and econometric arguments which we can do for, for three days, the more we look at what's happening on the ground. I've seen what's happening in Chile, my own country and how it has made it by improving governance and anti-corruption compared with its neighbors. Or, or comp-
0: yeah, Let's hear from Mushtaq on, on his answer to that point, which is that in a sense it stands to reason that if, that, that if you improve corruption that that reduces poverty, but also the point you were, that I interrupted you before you were about to make about the ways that um, entrenched elites in poor countries, uh, that, that there is corruption inherent in that system.
2: I think that the big methodological issues about evidence and data are actually vitally important. Okay? If you compare countries with slightly more and slightly less corruption and slightly less and slightly higher growth rates, it is true that, I have no dispute with, with Danny, that everything else being the same, a little less corruption is better. The question is, the problem that Danny doesn't look at is if you look at every successful transition, if you look at the China, the South Korea, the Malaysia, the Thailand, the Japan before that, okay? What was the process through which countries actually developed as opposed to comparing Kenya with Tanzania and so on? There's no historical evidence of a country which first reduced corruption and then developed. This is my problem with the whole econometric exercise. And, and, and the reason for that is, the reason why you can't do that are those structural reasons which we really need to understand. So one, one problem is that... Poor countries are going through transitions. They're going through huge social change. The problem of corruption is that if you have a stable ruling class, if you are a poor country but you're stable, then the ruling class is legitimate. You will actually have very low corruption. The Mughal Empire was not very corrupt. India today is highly corrupt. Why? Because it's going through an enormous social transition. New classes are coming up. New forms of social organization are coming up. In rich countries there is a lot of mechanisms through which the rich preserve and protect their privilege and acquire privilege. And in, in economics, this is called rent-seeking. Okay, the, the difference is that in rich countries, a lot of the rent-seeking is legal. Some of it is very damaging, and some of it is not so damaging, and some of it is very beneficial, but it's legal. The problem in poor countries is that much of that rent-seeking, the way through which emerging elites buy themselves privilege and protect their assets and so on, is structurally illegal because they are not legitimate yet. It's a process of transition. And that happens actually, by the way, in some relatively rich countries like Eastern Europe, when they were going through their transitions, you have very high spikes in corruption. That kind of corruption is, is produced by the process of transition itself. We should get away from that uh, legal versus illegal division between rent-seeking and go down to what I think is much more important, which is why are some types of rent-seeking so damaging, and, and how do we address those? And why are some types of rent-seeking in transition economies actually structural, which we can't do anything about? And if we try and attack that, actually we, we do damage to the patient. It, 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 does, it doesn't help the patient. And, and there's one other type of corruption which is absolutely fundamental in, in poor countries, which I think economists don't really understand, and that is political corruption. And the reason why all developing countries have significant amounts of political corruption till their middle, middle income is that the way in which you buy political stability in rich countries, which is by having a 30 to 40 to 50% tax base and then redistributing a lot to people, is just not possible in poor countries. So you can't achieve political stability through that mechanism. There are huge aspirations, there are huge instabilities and violence and, 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 and wars going on and civil wars going on. Elites in developing countries achieve stability through processes of patron-client politics where, to put it very crudely, what they do is they identify the most powerful and the most dangerous coalitions and they buy them off, and they include them in the government, and the fight is between different coalitions of very dangerous people. That kind of political corruption is, if you try to tackle that, you actually blow those countries up, okay? So you need to understand what you're doing. There are some very damaging types of corruption which we need to address. And you don't identify what those damaging types are through regression exercises. So that, but let's let's come on in just
0: a second before uh, to the question of what kinds of governance improvements matter and matter for development and growth. But but let me just go back, Danny, to give you a chance to come back on that point. Mutschner's point is, if, if I may summarize it, and you'll um, tell me if I've got this wrong, that um, part of the process of economic change is to do with the redistribution of wealth and power. And in an environment that essentially we call that corruption where it's illegal, and in poor countries it's inevitable that as they they go through that process of change, there is illegal transferring of, of wealth and power and that that's part
2: of the development, that's an inevitable part of the development process. And an illegal, illegitimate mechanism of protecting the assets of those who are themselves illegitimate because they haven't been there long enough. So it becomes legitimate. Daniel, there's no development without corruption. Look,
1: um, it's not just no development, but uh, there is no... um, Nowadays, if there was any doubt... We know that that uh, there's there's there are no world affairs without. Um, without some of the wheels being turned by, by, by corruption. The whole issue, there is absolutely no question. And let's just agree quickly on, on one issue of convergence and then let's, let's discuss the most pressing issues of the day. Um, there is no question that at the end of the day, corruption has a huge element of being a symptom. It's a very negative symptom. The corruption is not the fundamental ill that causes everything else corruption in turn is related to political inequality is related to it uh, to all kinds of historical institutions and we can discuss very much which ones mushta prefer which ones i prefer there's a whole literature from from mit from cambridge from uh, many places um, so obviously Corruption is a result also of many of those. The issue of political inequality, the, the, the distinction between illegal and legal corruption, which we have written a lot, a lot about, is something worth noting. And if anybody thought that poverty still thought that poverty causes corruption. Look at what happened in, in the financial crisis in the world. Look at the Wall Street corruption, which a lot of it was legal, was captured. One issue that we have not discussed yet, which is part of political inequality, is capture of the regulatory framework and of the state but by particularly power, powerful financial and industrial firms. And that happens in many, many countries. And I assume that Mushta would not disagree with those Manifestation. So which manifestation of corruption and which determinant of corruption, which one matters a bit more or less, we can discuss that. And there's a, a lot of areas of convergence and some of the areas of petty corruption may not matter as much as those grand corruption and some even legal corruption, which also happens in the United States and the rich countries. Having said that, I think we need to, to have a hard look at the data and be very careful in not putting in the same group – India and uh, Kenya, for instance. Um, countries like Kenya, the type of, of, of corruption and the extent and the magnitudes and what has happened, including at the, at the very, very top it, it One has a loop, and that's why I think we need to be much more practical, get into the country, understand the country, read these books, like by Michel Aron, to understand the nefarious effect that throughout history, corruption and the associated misgovernance has caused, as opposed to India, which is in another league, there is corruption in India, there is corruption in Wall Street, uh, too, but it's a completely different type and extent and that's where we need to get into the country and look and, and look into that botswana is a completely different story from very early on with anti-corruption and with better governance and mauritius and ghana a number of other countries and they have shown the way that by from early on fighting these and tackling these issues they have managed to develop in a way that kenya has stayed stuck for uh, for all this year not to speak about the equatorial guineas and other other such countries so let's be very careful in not labeling india as totally corrupt as if it was a case like equatorial guinea because it's, a, it's it's a complete misunderstanding of the evidence Okay, so I think I'm seeing some convergence here. Meshik, I, think, I think this is remarkable.
2: We are actually seeing some convergence with, uh, with Danny Kaufman. And I've been arguing for many years that there are many different types of corruption. And even within India, the corruption you find in places like eastern Uttar Pradesh or Bihar is very different from the corruption you find in Tamil Nadu, which is very different from the corruption you find in Maharashtra. And I think this is precisely the kind of case study understanding of political economic processes that we need to understand to, to be able to intervene effectively. I think there is, having achieved that, let me actually push that convergence a little bit further. No, don't, don't, don't rock the boat here. We've got a consensus. Okay. No, no, no. no, 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 no.
1: I, but I think there are substantial differences. But you agree, Bustak, but you agree that at the top in India, you cannot compare in, with the kleptocracies that we have known in, in other countries. At The top... The top, in terms of the civil service at our worst, and uh, yeah. the top political leadership in India, is it as corrupt as some of the other countries that you're putting in the same, in, in, in the same group? That would be a complete misunderstanding. As opposed to local corruption, which is also a huge issue in China, I agree. But yeah. one has to distinguish.
2: Yes. And my entire life's work, Danny, has been about distinguishing these things and saying that if you look at the aggregate amounts of corruption in some indicators of opinion surveys and so on, you actually don't understand the differences. And that's precisely what I have been saying. So the reason why India does better than Kenya and China does better than India is to some extent related to the nature of these political economy differences in the types of corruption. That's exactly what I have been saying for a very long time. So we are converging. Now, the issue really is when you actually do your micro studies, there's one issue which you you, you shouldn't forget the big historical picture. If the kinds of issues which the Kenyan evidence points out, which I, I think... Here's another convergence, okay? I can agree with you completely that if you have an aid project or if you have massive theft in the delivery of public services, then you're not going to develop, okay? But there are lots of other things you need to actually achieve development. If you compare Kenya with China, with Malaysia, with even the bits of India which are working uh, relatively well, uh, with South Korea and so on, is the difference between them primarily in the theft which is taking place in in projects which undoubtedly is a difference or are there much more fundamental differences in the political organization of the uh, uh, the transition and the way in which the transformations are happening in which new classes are coming up in which new technologies are being adopted and so on which i think are much more important so that if we focus our our attention on getting a little bit uh, of improvement in the corruption which happens in projects, are we really going to see a transformation of Kenya into a China or even into a Malaysia or even into a Thailand? I I don't think so. So I think that while I agree with you that there are important differences in in some aspects of corruption, there are other much more important political economy differences which we forget, which we can only identify when we look at the historical process of transition that I'm particularly interested in. And that doesn't mean that there are any simple answers. And where the convergence is, is that we need to understand countries much better, we need to understand these processes of transformation much better, but we also need to keep our eye on the big historical picture. The big historical picture is the reason why China is developing and parts of India are developing and Korea developed uh, before that, is not just that their, their leaders were slightly less kleptocratic. The, the, how you measure kleptocracy is itself very important the Chinese leaders or South Korean leaders in absolute amounts made more money than any African leader can ever imagine. The thing is that they made their money by actually developing their economies. So there's a much more fundamental question is why do some elites make their money by destroying their economies and others make their money by growing their economies? If you look at it in percentage terms, the percentage that the Chinese Take might be less than the percentage the Kenyans take, but they make massively more. They're massively richer. So ruling classes in these countries are rich because they're sharing in the growth of these countries. We shouldn't forget that. So we have to understand so, so Danny, deeper political you, economy questions. Danny,
0: what do you say to the, uh, the argument that it isn't the differences in corruption that determine the difference for why these countries are developing? That there, are other th- there are other bigger, deeper uh, issues that determine why Kenya is on one trajectory and India is on another.
1: Well, the, the differences, it's a very important first cut. Uh, they, and there's no question that the overall difference and in magnitudes in, in, in Kenya versus the magnitudes in India is a first cut big explanator. But I agree that's not enough. Then one has to look at the at the different manifestations. Um, and but then again, we have to be very careful with the empirics and with the data. I have no evidence of how rich the top leaders of. Of China got. They were not kleptocrats in my book and in the evidence I have. I would like to see the evidence that Mushtaq has uh, uh, to the contrary that those Chinese leaders. The issue is more at the, lo- at the local level and some in a different uh, uh, party level and at the enterprise level at state enterprise. So I think we need to be very careful with that like the statement made uh, before, before about, uh, about India. But, but I, I, let's Let's put, that, let's put this to my
0: side, yeah. because I, I rather sympathize with that. I mean, when you think of Mobutu flying in jumbo jets of flowers from Paris and things like that, uh, well, I don't see any Chinese leaders oh, ever having behaved
2: like that. You're absolutely wrong. I mean, if you actually look at the absolute level of Mobutu's pathetic little um, houses in, in France and his pathetic you know, palace in, in his country, and you compare that, I mean, I, I personally know Chinese bureaucrats in, in South Asia who are doing deals for public sector Chinese companies and if you look at their lifestyle the clothes they wear, the cars they drive, the assets they control it is of a fantastically different magnitude and they're engaged in very close connections with their governments, with the governments in the developing countries in which they do business they are, uh, are public private entrepreneurs they, they combine political power with business and they are superbly rich. Now if Danny wants a figure Obviously, you, 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 you can't do a survey and say this is the asset base. <laughs> How of How much you but I you I But I think, I think that in, in, terms of, in terms of qualitative observations of it, Chinese uh, uh, bureaucrats and Chinese public officials in business, forget in China, because you yeah. can't go and look at them in China, but if you look at them in India, in Bangladesh, in Africa, and you compare them with the African counterparts,
1: they're on different planets. Yeah, well, um, I think we need to make a very clear dis- distinction but, uh, between bureaucrats and, and the top political elite and the top leaders I thought we were talking about the top leaders and when we talk about kleptocracy that clearly refers to the top leaders of the country uh, Mobutu um, in terms of percentage of the country in terms of the, the, the while he's, he stole the, um, the assets of the country it's an extreme case but it's not alone Marcos um, commanded more wife in that sense, but I, I have absolutely no evidence that the top Chinese political leaders did that. But let's move on. I think another no, another very important no, but a very important statement that Mushtaq. Uh, made And I think it's very important for policy today. This historical determinants and understanding the history is absolutely crucial. But perhaps because we come from a different background um, from, from where we come. I have seen it in my own country, in, in, in Chile. Yes, we can. The importance of current factors, if you have proper leadership, which we have not discussed... Uh, understands the importance of taking the bull by the horns and saying we want to join the 21st century have good institutions good governance, anti-corruption this has been the effort in Chile well before we started uh, growing um, at, at, at such a pace and we are not alone, there are the Baltics, there are the Botswanas there are a number of cases throughout the world that show that you do not have to be rich to afford the luxury of good governance and have very good rating in terms of not being corrupt, relatively speaking. Chile today rates better than many rich OECD countries, including the Italy, the Greece, and a number of other countries in, 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 the, in the world. So we need to concentrate and look at those, those cases and the importance of that leadership can, 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 can make.
0: You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barda, in Addis Ababa and my guests, Daniel Kaufman and Mushtaq Khan. If you have comments on this or any other episode of Development Drums or if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do so by coming to the developmentdrums.org website or join the Development Drums group on Facebook. Can we focus on this question of Changes that we can make. And in particular, this question of um, what kinds of improvements in governance uh, governance improves growth. Uh, Because I know, Mishtak, you've written about the difference between governance improvements that improve markets and governance improvements that improve economic growth. And I've, uh, sometimes in, in this literature, these things are all bundled up together as if this is all one and the same thing. To unpack for us what you mean by that distinction and why it's important.
2: L- let me unpack it by connecting it with the discussion before. Danny said there's, it's, he doesn't know of any evidence of um, kleptocracy in successful countries in the, in the type of, uh, that, that you see in Africa. I think the problem is that when you look at processes of accumulation in successful countries, they look different exposed, okay? There is a lot of case study evidence now of what happened in South Korea in the 1960s under the early Park Chung-hee and, and his successors, what is happening in the provincial level in China, what happened in Indonesia, um, what, what happened in Thailand um, during the 1980s, which shows that actually the, the difference between the accumulation of political leaders in high-growth countries and low-growth countries, is not that one takes a lesser per- amount. It it ends up as a, as a lesser percentage because what is happening in the successful countries is that the leadership is constructing growth. And if you share in growth, it always looks less kleptocratic than if you're trying to share or, or extract from stagnation. So the political economy question is, what kinds of political leaderships do you need to have to construct growth and transformation, and this is what I call governance for growth. And and what we need to learn, and I'll come back to Chile and and the Latin American examples later on. The the problem in in, in poor countries making the transition is putting it very bluntly. How do you construct humane and dynamic versions of capitalism? Mm. And this is a very difficult task because capitalism, by its nature, is not just. It's not fair, and it's it's an ugly beast, right? So when we're talking about markets, you actually miss the the, the elephant in the room, which is markets have existed in developing countries for thousands of years. We don't need anyone to come and tell us about markets. India had markets when Europeans didn't know what a bath was. The point is that to construct capitalism is something completely new. It's It's a different hierarchy in society. It's a different asset structure. It's very difficult to construct. You need to have a lot of elite cohesion. You need to have a lot of elite cohesion to achieve that transformation without civil war breaking out. The problem with a lot of African countries and large parts of India as well is that that elite cohesion is very difficult to construct. The elites, when they have cohesion, don't have a long enough time horizon so that they do a lot of looting instead of constructive uh, construction of capitalism from which they will actually end up better off. This is a problem. The issue with Chile, you see, is that in Chile, the capitalist transition has already happened. It's not, as I said earlier, it's not a question of rich and poor it's a question of transition. You can be a relatively middle-income capitalist country where the capitalist structure is already there, and you just then keep your 5% growth going. The problem with, you can be a much richer country, which is, let's say, state-planned, and you make a transition, and then corruption and all these problems of elite cohesion break down. In Chile, that elite cohesion problem was solved through a lot of nasty historical uh, processes, which we all know about, so we don't need to go into the history of Chile, but right now Chile has got a cohesive capitalist structure, which is not going through any fundamental transformations, and so even as a middle-income country, it can do some what I would call market-enhancing good governance. This is not the problem in, Ch- in China or India or Thailand and certainly not in Kenya, where the elite cohesion itself doesn't exist, a capitalist economy doesn't exist, rich or poor, and capitalist sectors are very small and subject to a lot of um, redistributive conflicts with different factions and political movements, which each are trying to enter the capitalist game. That's a very different political economy. So, Danny, what do you make of this idea that uh,
0: we need to think about governance reforms that promote growth rather than governance reforms that just
1: promote markets? Um, I mean, 10 years ago, we could have had uh, that, that debate. Um, Today, and I've written about it, it's it's the era or the end of ideology. And if, even if you look at the G20 and now, uh, there's, there's no difference in major ideological terms, including between the Chinas and the and the U.S. in terms of the, the fundamentals. Um, and the Obama administration understands that these major... Um, Interventions that are needed in certain parts of the market. So, I would like to reintegrate these old notions, that distinction between growth enhancing and marketing enhancing, by suggesting that the operative concept should be market friendly approaches to ensure that there is sustained growth. Now, to ensure market-friendly approaches that are consistent with with long-term sustained growth, governance is crucial, and we can get into all kinds of abstract social engineering of how to have the perfect construct for a a country to do a a transition, but this is not a social engineering um, experiment at the academic level. This happens organically, each country with its own civil society, government, uh, government, nooks and crannies um, have to go through. And let me suggest that we are grappling with major issues still in Chile today, even though, relatively speaking, we're doing well, exactly because of the still legacy of the Pinochet era, where a few potentates still wielded enormous power in terms, of, um, in terms of subtle or not so subtle capture in the economy, like in, in, in Wall Street. So this is by no means over. So we can talk about transition in any country nowadays, including what's happening now in, in the US. That's not very useful operative concept at the very practical level. At the very practical level, let me put it very much in front of you, because there I think we agree with Mushtaq, it's not that one needs to fight corruption by fighting corruption. There are certain actions that need to be taken for more integrity and and, and lack of corruption in, in aid and in projects and investment, of course. But how can we who would disagree about the importance of transparency or free of a free press, of democratic uh, democratic accountability, of some contestability at the both political and economic level in terms of procurement, putting everything online. So let's discuss concretely because this is what the people in in Kenya and the citizens in Tanzania, in in China, and so on. Because, by the way, these kleptocrats were not confined to, to, to Africa. Remember the Marcos. The Marcos is an, and, and, and there are others, not to speak to others that remain in other parts of the, the world, including my own continent. So let's, uh, let's discuss concretely, does anybody among us three disagree that we need to focus on those fundamentals? In the past 15 years, I've been monitoring the data. There are many more countries with democratic elections, but there has not been an improvement around the world on a free press. To the contrary, there are reversals going against that in terms of further for the censorship the same in terms of civil liberties and and so on the same in terms of transparency does not seem to be increasing a pace in terms of disclosure of assets of the politician why don't we talk about that rather than than abstract experiments in social engineering which is not how development takes place on the ground Mr. that seems a very fair challenge because most ordinary people you know
0: not the experts in this topic listening to this podcast would be saying here, here to that, you know, free press, property rights, rule of law, democratic elections. What's wrong with that as an agenda? Why, why aren't those important things to pursue as part of the development debate?
2: You've opened up a whole new can of worms now, because exactly what you could say about corruption, you could say about meaningful democracy, accountability, transparency, and so on. Are these things achieved through a process of development and the deepening of a productive sector and a deepening of the middle classes and civil society, or are they preconditions of development? And and I could say exactly the same thing about that agenda as before. And I think while there is a convergence, there is also, and, and thankfully, also areas of disagreement, so we can keep talking to Danny. I don't think just because every country is going through some process of transition that every country is in transition. The transition that a Kenya has to go through to even to get to a, a position where it can where it can ha- employ its people is very different from the transition that the u s has to get through to solve massively damaging rent seeking in its financial sector. I think there are differences in the kinds of transitions so market friendly won't market friendly is a much older term than market enhancing and growth enhancing governance and so on we let 's come down to the concretes. I think the concrete is is it is it the case that if you have transparency, you can solve problems? Are people in Kenya or in India or in in any country, you can in Bangladesh, which is where I come from, are they not aware of who is corrupt and how they are corrupt? Everyone knows. The taxi driver you take from the airport to your hotel will tell you exactly who is corrupt and how they are corrupt and how much money they've made, and they might even exaggerate a bit of what's happening. That doesn't help anyone to fight anything. Okay, because the, the problem is, is the structural issues that we come down to. The same people who are complaining about corruption will vote for the most corrupt politicians because those are the politicians with the resources to protect them. Now, these are the structural problems. If I'm a voter and the only person who can protect me is a corrupt mafia boss and the, and the honest guy can't collect any tax to deliver anything to me, what does it mean to say I want an open democracy and I want a free press? The kinds of concrete issues that I would focus on are the concrete market failures that are constraining development. How do you actually construct a capitalist sector? How do you get land and resources to industry? How do you actually get the financing to industry in very risky areas where... The market failures are so huge that the private sector won't invest and it would take a generation to solve it by doing the market enhancing governance of contracts and rule of law. The reason why China succeeds is that there are very ad hoc, pragmatic solutions to these problems at the local level. That's what Kenya should be learning about. China is not succeeding because it has a free press and an open democracy and all the rest of it, although that's very desirable. I have no problem with, with saying, yes, let's go for that. We want, I want that anyway. But I don't think that the problem in Bangladesh is that people don't know who's corrupt, that the the problem in Bangladesh is that people don't have political choices and there's no democracy. We have lots of choice between different corrupt people to vote for, and you elect one load of corrupt people or another load of corrupt people, and everybody knows that they're corrupt. This is not the problem. The problem is how do you actually construct the prosperity which will allow us slowly to construct a social democratic form of capitalism, where through the distribution of fiscal resources you can actually achieve poverty reduction and and a good life for the maximum number of people. That's my my problem, Danny. That's so. Transparency is uh, is no use if
0: you don't if you don't have a way to change the. Uh, it's,
2: it's useful. It's better than not having it, but it won't solve
1: your problem, Danny. Uh, first no one single action will solve the problem. This is, unfortunately, the the very uh, complicated social (laughs) sciences and development and and not physics. Um, So it has to be combination and there we all agree that it, it is context specific so what uh, there is no one template that one arrives to either Bangladesh or Chile and, and this is a bible which, one are, which are going to be the priorities and it's very important to prioritise Um, are going to vary from one setting to another each country's transition is different but there's going to be a set of four or five priorities to just name a number that one has to put effort on on those and the complementarity when i speak about transparency reforms that's an agenda that has to be complemented of course by enforcement by institutional uh, strengthening in in other areas uh, and so on but i'm not talking about Making corruption more transparent, which has been made much more transparent through many other ways i am talking about at the fundamental institutional level in terms of electoral finance, campaign finance, much, much more uh, transparency in terms of the assets of candidates of politicians in terms of procurement. I can give you uh, we can discuss a very concrete list of about 12 things that the reformists in reformist countries are doing Mexico is one of the countries leading that that effort but of course it won't suffice but they die i mean that's so obvious the question is and which transparency reforms and it's not just to to say a number about corruption on who is corrupt again in the press but which ones are uh, crucial for which country and 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 so on now uh, i would also throw to to Group. We're in 2010 almost. 2010, every country has a market economy, with the possible exception of a handful, which we could agree with. But the Kenyans, anybody who has worked in these countries, they all have it. The question is whether they are surviving, thriving, or operating in conjunction and with a helping um, hand of government or in spite of government. But there's no such thing as a country that has not undergone the transition. In fact, I lived in Ukraine um, in the transition from the Soviet to the post-Soviet era. There was even a market during the Soviet era, which was mostly informal and underground, and the transition took place almost immediately, even in the worst-governed, a, a transitions in the post-soviet union. They all have a market. So let's get real and see. Then ask the question: What, in a very practical way, are the most important priorities that in every country would matter? And there is no one Bible. I agree. I agree with that. But again, we have not focused sufficiently on on leadership and how a courageous leadership and reformist can change the name of the game in spite of the importance of historical determinants, because that leads to a lot of fatalism. Some of the writings that say it's all historically determined and so much determinism. When we have in Latin America, we we and the neighbors have the same history, the same um, uh, the same um, um, almost in, in every count on history and we have gone totally different ways or Ukraine versus Poland or the two Koreas just taking case studies of two neighboring countries with very similar historical, cultural, geographical colonial uh, um, heritages and they have gone very different direction depending on leadership, on reform on governance reforms and so on
0: Can I ask about the role of outsiders in, in this? Because um, uh, one of the challenges for policymakers in development is uh, what, if anything, uh, external actors, whether it's uh, aid donors or other governments or indeed civil society and others from abroad, um, could or should be doing to promote various kinds of better governance in developing countries. Um, you, you talk, Danny, about about. Uh, the importance of leadership, which um, makes me wonder whether that's just a, a historical accident. But let me let me start with Mustafa. Ask what what do you think is the right role, if any, for external actors to promote uh, the kinds of governance reforms you would like to see, and, and the kinds of uh, the kind of broader governance agenda.
2: I think the external actors generally do a lot of damage because they bring in ideas which are half-baked and and not very clearly defined and some of it is is evident in the discussion we've been having, right? I mean, even two extremely um, well-read people like Danny and myself who have gone through the literature can't even agree about our terminology because it seems that Danny keeps criticizing me for saying things which I'm not saying and and gets it tangentially wrong. I'm Absolutely, I'm actually saying that markets have existed for thousands of years. That's not the problem. The transition I'm talking about is not the transition to a market economy. That was a problem in Eastern Europe. The transition I'm talking about is a transition to capitalism. It's a, it's a particular way of organizing production in societies with a particular distribution of assets, which creates incentives for technology absorption and technology uh, use, which creates incentives for exporting and, and growth and, and production. And that is extremely difficult to construct. It's a very politically difficult and painful process of constructing capitalism. And the, in the issues of governance that I would focus on is to look at the social and political and institutional constraints which are blocking that, which are vast and huge in developing countries, and which are only tangentially and very indirectly connected to things like transparency and electoral processes and so on, which are all important. But it doesn't help me in, in, in asking, why is it that Bangladesh only produces garments and can't produce something else which is equally simple and trivial? And, and I could go into very concrete market failures in institutions, in financing, in land acquisition, which are, to me, the most fundamental things you need to solve in those, in those contexts. And transparency and on, on other things that we are discussing don't address those growth-enhancing governance issues. So the growth-enhancing governance issue is, I think, very important, and we don't have time to go into that. Now, in terms of what outsiders do, I think outsiders do a lot of damage by setting countries' goals of governance, which are actually unachievable. So what you, what you come, I mean, I, I, and Danny has converged to some extent, but, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of people were saying, set countries targets for gov- for corruption, set countries targets for X, Y, and Z uh, governance indicators. If you bring down your governance indicator by two points, you will have so many X percentage points of growth and so on. People were writing professional articles in referee journals, in, in re- reputable journals of that type. Now... What happens is when you go to a country and you and you set that kind of agenda, you mobilize a lot of people, and, and real people hate corruption in developing countries, right? So it's very easy to construct massive social movements fighting corruption, okay? And because people don't like corruption, I don't like corruption, it's horrible. So you mobilize all these people, you, you focus the political effort in, in fighting something, and then you don't actually explained to them that the problem is structural, that actually you can remove this government, put in another government. In Indonesia, they got rid of this horrible guy called Suharto, and they ended up with a very pious and, and good and, and profound leadership of Rahman Wahid, who really wanted to fight corruption. And He ended up in, in one year's time as corrupt as the previous one, because his party, his structures, the way in which politics is maintained, is corrupt. Now, what you then end up with is something devastating, which is demoralization. You demoralize people because they begin to lose confidence in their own politics, in their own ability to change their lives, because you haven't constructed achievable goals of governance which deliver anything. And this is the real problem with outside ideas coming in, which are, in the most well-meaning way, are setting agendas which cannot be delivered. And we've seen that again and again and again in many, many developing countries. Danny,
0: we're, we're setting targets that can't be delivered with the effect of demoralization. Well, the the problem
1: is is in the notion of of we. I mean, um, um, first, all these data, and we have been very involved, as you know, on on uh, indicators and doing surveys. This data is an empowering tool for the reformists and for civil society within the country. It's not for an outsider to say the target. I mean, who would think that? Although some organizations like to do that. But obviously, that's, that's not very useful. That's for them to do. And in fact, looking carefully at the data is so important, again, to monitor uh, um, what has been happening. In Indonesia, over the past decade, there's been an improvement in corruption from an extremely low base, obviously, but it's going in the right direction. And that's moralizing for many people, including the Minister of Finance, who told me so, that they like to look at these these benchmarks and these numbers, not because some outsider will tell them where they should be, but because then the reformers want to continue arguing for continuing that route. The same with the, the reformers during the Yeltsin era in, in, in Russia and so on. They use these. So, these are empowering tools. So, so from What's the limit
0: of, of external interferences that we provide benchmarks.
1: Let me, let me, let me answer that. So one, one area is just knowledge uh, sharing and data with all the problems. and We should be make it very clear with margins and error and so on. But let's empower everybody who is asking for, and there's so much demand for that, these tools for them then to monitor, to do a data-driven policy making and and monitoring and to empower them for for more reform. Second is to share Uh, the experiences of other parts of the world of other countries that some outsider is invited because they know and uh, and i have been in in many countries when i accept an assignment is not to tell them what they should do It's because they want to understand others did it these countries the reformist countries nowadays they want performance-based management performance-based improvement in, in governance and they want to learn from the best examples from other places in the world and their outsiders can play a useful role in sharing information finally aid in a much more selective and careful fashion that is done sometimes too indiscriminately can be very useful not in pushing or conditioning reforms from the outside but once you have a a committed leadership with integrity to support them because sometimes they need resources, in particular in poor countries, which they cannot get from foreign direct investment in the first phase. So it can be useful in complementing those reforms, but they have to start from within.
2: See, a lot of things that Danny says are very reasonable, and at one level I don't disagree with him. Of course, knowledge, information, and experiences is all very important. The problem is that the the way in which Western intellectual consensus is constructed, we are providing a very partial understanding of history. And this is really a significant problem because I think that, I mean, I I worry that if you look at the historical examples of the really successful transitions in the last 50 to 100 years, if you look at the South Koreas, the Taiwans, the Singapore's, the Malaysias, the Thailands, the Chinas, the one thing which is strikingly common to all of them is that outside advice played a very small role in their transitions? Right. I mean, the South Koreans did not listen to what the World Bank was saying. The Taiwanese didn't listen to um, governance advice. No, nor did the Chinese. Nor did the Thais. Nor did the Indonesians. And I, I of course, this is this is I'm, I'm being rhetorical and, and and slightly exaggerating this. I think that what each country has to find its own political cohesiveness to carry out very painful and ugly transitions, and I keep coming back to this. What we are talking about is a very difficult and painful transition where you are constructing a new society, which is capitalist in a broad sense, but which has many differences between countries, where the state plays a very significant role in the early setting up of industries, in technology acquisition, in the processes of of transferring and, and, and transiting from one economic structure to the other, those are processes which don't fit and sit very easily in the intellectual structures and and liberal economics and good governance um, uh, political philosophies which Western countries have. And I admire and appreciate those values. I want to live by them, but I think that in many respects it's very difficult to live by them and actually carry out a transition in the humane, just, and... Um, efficient way in developing countries. And this is the the problem that actually it might be that if the Chinese were in Africa, Africa might have an easier time paradoxically than with all the advice and which, which creates aspirations, which creates uh, ambitions but which are very difficult to satisfy and you actually end up with greater social uh, discord and greater social dissatisfaction. So at one level, I agree with, with Danny. We need to have more information. We need to actually provide more examples and more history to developing countries, but that should be on a more, more balanced way. I mean, the, the, Chile is a very exceptional country to, to really focus on. We, we really need to look at China. We need to look at South Korea. We need to look at Japan. We need to look at Malaysia. Are those historical examples understood enough in Africa? Do people really understand how South Korea, how Taiwan, how China, how Malaysia? And what kinds of governance did they have to to make those transitions? It
0: strikes me that you're both being quite modest about what you think the role of outsiders should be. Um, uh, uh, Even you, Danny, are are talking about um, information, benchmarking, lesson learning. I, I would think that most people who pay taxes to uh, aid agencies think that we are, ought to be rather more um, sharp-edged than that, that we should be um, being tougher about not giving aid to countries, creating stronger incentives for yeah. countries to tackle corruption. Actually, I, I, I'm just interested to know, yeah. Danny, well,
1: do you think that's… That, that, um, Absolutely. I, 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 may, maybe I said it very quickly, but I said it. Um aid, aid and finance, uh, financing development plays an important role, but I say very clearly, we need to be more selective and we need to be more selective in ensuring that it's good money that goes after basically good money good uh, and, and, and a commitment to improve um, institutions, governance and, 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 and anti-corruption rather than not being se- sufficiently selective or not selective at all where at the end of the day, those that are making very serious efforts are denied very very important uh, resources which are important for their reform. So in that sense, the complementarity between aid and advice is very important. But also I agree with you Owen, we should be while we should not be very prescriptive in saying this is what's going to work in your country that has to be organically generated from within the country and led by the country we should not be shy about saying how it happened elsewhere but also about what doesn't work and there's still a lot of mythology in terms of uh, try this and try that try singapore has been so successful well try singapore in kenya good luck so at at In 2010, we need to be much sharper edge and much more realistic on the ground of what can work. So we are back to the very basic question, and Owen, you summarise this very well, is how uh, we should not be diverted with all kinds of abstract constructs uh, from the basic issues in so many countries of rule of law, And yes, it will vary according to the diagnostic what aspect of the judiciary is most important and rural law is missing and what part of enforcement. The basic issue of transparency and disclosure and which five reforms are crucial are very important, of the free press, of democratic accountability, even in their own way of the country, doesn't have to be an Anglo-Saxon, totally Anglo-Saxon approach. But more democratic accountability and contestability in terms of the polity, it's it has to be part of this debate. And I would like to hear from Moshtak an alternative to that for any country that you would tell no, go go the the authoritarian route or or some other variant thereof of managed democracy, which is, is, seems to be a fad nowadays in the Russias and in a number of, of African and Latin American countries. How can we uh, basically get away with all kinds of extraneous arguments from the very basic issues which you yourself set, set up on? We need to go back to the basics because so many countries are getting away from that. And one excuse for that is a crisis, by the way where we're going to see, and that's my last point for now, we're going to see a, a, an increasing gap in governance, institution, and, and development outcomes because there is one group of countries which are, are essentially reformist and another, another group which are basically sitting on the fence and using it as an excuse for, for coming up with all kinds of anti-market or anti-capitalist rhetoric. And for now, we cannot act unless we're giving a lot of money in any case and, and not reform. So you're going to see some countries which are ceasing this as an opportunity for reform after the, the debacle, while others are going to stay further behind. So it's very urgent to get to these practical issues now and not to, to, to uh, too lofty and abstract of an argument.
2: I think it 's extremely important not to be lofty, but I think the the loftiness of of daniel 's position is that he says that we should not be asking. Kenya to become like Singapore, which I completely and absolutely agree with. It would be ludicrous if I or anybody else suggested that Kenya should be like Singapore. My problem is that we are asking Kenya to be like Sweden and Norway or or like the United States. And that's the problem. So the, the issue is not that we are setting Kenya a set of goals which are about how Kenya makes the transition to capitalism within Kenya in a way which is consistent with Kenya's internal politics and its history and its existing technologies. We are not sitting down and identifying the market failures in its land markets, in its technology markets, in its financial markets, and fixing those. We are focusing on issues like transparency, accountability, rule of law, and so on, which don't come from Singapore, but they come from Norway, Sweden, and the United States. And those are actually not achievable in any meaningful sense. And I disagree with Danny that these are setting realistic and pragmatic reform targets. They might be in in some detail in some specific areas, but in general, they are actually in country after country that I work in and I have knowledge of actually creating discord and social dissatisfaction because it's a reform agenda, which is unimplementable. And in terms of aid, I think it's absolutely important. There's a fiduciary responsibility to taxpayers in rich countries that aid doesn't get stolen. There's absolutely no question about that. Aid has to be managed, and and we have to ensure that aid is not stolen. Otherwise, taxpayers in rich countries will stop giving aid. There's absolutely no problem with that. The problem is setting countries' reform and governance targets which, from my perspective, should be focused on only one thing, which is We have to understand that what is happening here is not about making markets work or uh, having more accountability or something abstract and lofty like that. It's something very nitty-gritty, which is how do we move from our existing industrial and agricultural structure uh, one or two steps up the value chain? What do we need to solve to do that? What are the market failures and institutional failures? And those are the governance areas, those particular agencies which deal with land allocation, the particular agencies that are managing finance and credit to upgrading technologies, that's where if we spent a lot of our time and focus and got rid of the damaging kinds of rent-seeking and corruption in those agencies, and we understood that some rent-seeking and some corruption might happen anyway because it's very difficult to get rid of all of that if we had a very pragmatic and practical approach to that and built up institutions and agencies at a very micro level which address these specific issues of transition and building capitalism, we would be making progress in Kenya without getting lofty and without getting unnecessarily profound. I'll, I'll just say, uh,
1: I'll just say one thing about the United States, by the way. Uh, has to undergo a major transition. Uh, anybody who would suggest that anybody should follow the example in the United States after what has happened, and and it's just a question of not only reading the speeches of Obama, but also seeing some of the actions. and wait And, and just wait until after the health reform package is passed. What's going to happen? In terms of the renewed effort on on the regulation of Wall Street and, and so on, so there's there absolutely no question that the United States and has to go also through a transition, and that's extremely important to understand on many of these countries. Rather than rather than trying to attain the perfection of any U.S. model, I don't know who would say uh, some, uh, something like this. So uh, the, this has to be put in in, in perspective, and it's not the issue of the Nordics either Um, but again we're back to the question of how in very concrete way one can suggest when one goes to these countries um, good examples of good transitions in terms of the rule of law issues in terms of the transparency issues in terms of how to improve and make uh, pr- procurement better in terms of the, the competitiveness in the polity and and, and so on, and making uh, markets, let markets uh, function with the needed regulations. So, uh, that's, so that's the end of ideology. On what was very nearly a point of convergence, that, that the
0: transition is, applies to countries both in the developing world and in the industrialized world, um, I'd like to thank both of you, Danny Kaufman. Thanks very much for coming on Development Drums. Thank you. And Ms. Carlton. Thank you for coming on Development
2: Drums. Thank you. And the me- and the meaning of transition is where we disagree. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both. <laughs>